But hey, I do want to get started today. We're going to do um, this new series. We're starting a brand new series. Um, I'm calling it Road Trip. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of John, okay? And, and, um, and what we did is I sat down with the preaching team, and we established some rules for ourselves because uh, as, a, as a preacher, sometimes you can get carried away um, and, and get stuck in the weeds. And so we've established some rules for ourselves, and one of those rules is we can take a break from the series anytime we want to, okay? Um, so we're going to be doing chapter by chapter of the book of John, but if we need to take a break and do something different, then we can do that. So, um, so if you notice, like at Easter time, obviously, if you're following along with the book of John, we won't be at the Easter story by Easter time in real life. We'll take a break, all right? We cool with that? Um, and then another rule that we're going to do is we are not necessarily going to hold ourselves to preach every single verse in a chapter. Now, I'm saying that, and the other day as we're preparing, I was like, chapter 1, I'm only going to preach these verses in chapter 1, and I'll just tell people they can read the rest of it on their own, and we'll talk about it. And then I was like, but if I preach these verses, then I've got to preach these verses. And then if I preach those, i really got to preach these And so chapter 1 already looks like it's going to take us three weeks to get through. Um, But we're not going to hold ourselves to every single verse. If we do miss some verses, if there's some leftovers, um, then then hopefully you can go home and read those and check them out. Um, And then the last thing I want to kind of point out is uh, on on doing the book of John, we're starting this week, but don't fear, I'm not actually starting in chapter 1 this week. Um, What I would... What I think might would be a good idea, this is not a requirement, um, I don't really give requirements in church, uh, what I think is a good idea is that we read the book of John throughout the week, not the whole book, but the first chapter before next Sunday. And something I heard a long time ago that I thought was a really cool thing is to read the same chapter, maybe you could read it three times this week, read chapter one three different times, and maybe read it from three different translation. So, so maybe you read the ESV one day, and the next day you read the NIV, and the next day you read the NLT. And if you're thinking, why is he speaking um, a different language right now? I'll explain all of those letters to you later, um, if you come talk to me, or any of the staff guys can help you out with that. But that might be a, di- a good idea, to get some different views of the first chapter of John. So those are the kind of the rules of what we're going to be doing. Also, um, you know I preach uh, from my iPad. I put all of my scriptures in my iPad. A long time ago, I realized my eyes were going bad, and so um, I couldn't read the little print in my Bible. So I put everything in my iPad because I feel like the most important thing I have to say today is scripture. If I screw up anything else, I don't want to screw up scripture, right? That's the one thing you've got to be right on. And so I thought for this series, I'm going to get a Bible, like a big physical Bible, but I need something that I can see. And so I got a giant print Bible. You can read this from the back row. When I opened this up, I was like, holy cow, that's the biggest print I've ever seen. And I'll get a workout every Sunday just picking this bad boy up, my bicep. Well, one of them is going to be huge. So I'm really excited about this giant Bible. I just had to bring it out for you to see um, if anybody needs to read from it. Just stay back there, and I'll just open it up. We don't even need the screens anymore. This thing's so big. Um, have you ever read a book, and, uh, and, and you flip it over on the back, 
and it says about the author. You know what I'm talking about? Like whenever you pick up a book, it gives a little bio of the author. Um, today, what I want to do as we start the book of John is I want to do, uh, the, the message title is going to be about the author. Um, I want to do a little bio on John. So today we're talking about John. John is the writer of the book of John. I know that's crazy to think. Um, and, and one of the reasons it's crazy to think is his name is not mentioned by, he doesn't mention his own name in his own book. And so then you start to wonder, how do we know it was John? Well, there's some clues, and we're not going to get into all the history and the, and the details, although I could get very nerdy on you real quick. Um, but some of John's disciples, the guys that he discipled, testified that John was the one that wrote this book. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about John today. I'm going to give you some thoughts about John himself. Uh, he wrote five different books of the New Testament. Um, he wrote John, obviously, and then he wrote 1 John. It's wild, the titles these guys come up with. Second John and Third John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. So that's the one time he kind of deviates a little bit. Um, so he, he wrote five books of the Bible. In his book, I didn't put this in the notes, Tim, so don't, don't freak out on me here. In his book, uh, let me give you a couple of things about his book that I think are interesting. He focuses on dialogue more than sermons. So in his writings about the life of Christ... And you know, there's four different writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four guys wrote about the life of Christ, um, and they all give their perspective. They all have a different audience that they're writing to, um, and, and they all have their own um, style of writing. John's writing is special um, in that he focuses on dialogue more than sermons. So a lot of times, whenever you're reading the book of John, you're going to notice you'll see more conversations that Jesus had with people than just the messages he preaches. So it would be like some of you guys, if you were going to write about uh, the history of Gateway Family Church, and, and one of you may sit down and you're just writing about all the sermons that were preached, but then someone else might would write, yeah, but, but whenever we were off stage and we talked about, this is what we talked about off stage. And so that's kind of how John leans. John is going to lean more about talking about the Messiah, Jesus being the Messiah, than he talks about Jesus' miracles. And so you can tell that John's kind of got a, a bent to him. He, he really wants people to know that Jesus is the Messiah more than he wants people to know about the special abilities Jesus had. Not to say he doesn't talk about miracles, because he does talk about miracles, but in his gospel, he calls them signs, not miracles. This is interesting. All the other three writers call them miracles. John calls them signs. I like that because... Um, you're going to see in the Bible a sign points to something. And whenever we see the idea of a sign, it's leading us somewhere. If you're on a road trip, you follow your GPS. But there was a time when you followed the signs, right? You follow the signs. Whenever I'm on a road trip, a lot of times I feel like I want to be um, more manly. And so I will turn off my GPS, but I'll look at it real quick. And I'll see that I got to go another 160 miles. So then I turn it off. And I start watching the signs, the mile marker signs. And I know that, that if I'm at mile marker 100 and I got to go 160, I'm looking for mile marker 260, and that's where I'm going to get off. And so I'll try to follow signs. It's a fun little game I play, and I get lost a lot. But John's going to focus on the word signs. The other thing that you're going to see about John's writing, and we'll get into some more of these later, is he's going to focus on metaphors more than anything else. Like he uses metaphors more than anybody else. He calls Jesus the bread, the light, 
the life. He calls Jesus uh, the, the vine. He's, and he quotes all of these metaphors that Jesus uses about himself. And so John's got a specific way of writing. Some, some facts about John. Uh, I already told you he's the author of five books. He is also the son of Zebedee, and we believe a lady named Salome. Salami. Salami would be a better name. Sal- Salome. I don't know what her name is. There it is on the screen. You can look at it and decide for yourself how you want to pronounce it. If you're hungry, it's salami. Um, and so he's the son of those two people. He is also the brother of James. And I know you're thinking, Gabriel, this is stupid. Why are you telling us? It'll make sense. Maybe. He's the brother of James. Now, in the Bible, there's a couple of names that get used a lot. John being one of them. We've got John, uh, this guy. We also have John the Baptist. These are two different people. Just FYI, if you're reading, these are two different people. Um, there's also, there's James, his brother. And then there's another disciple that was called James the Lesser. How would you like that to be your nickname? <laughs> right? You're walking along, and, and, and it's Gabriel and Gabriel the Lesser. I don't want to be the lesser one, right? And so, um, and so there was James the Lesser. But then there's another guy named James that wrote the book of James. Totally different guy. That's one of the brothers of Jesus. So James and John are names that are very common in the Bible. Another fact about John. John was probably very young. He was probably very young. So how many of you have watched The Chosen, the series The Chosen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of us have watched the series The Chosen. And John's one of our favorite characters. John shows up on the scene and John's got him a little mustache and a goatee or a beard or something. Probably not real. They probably messed that up. Chances are John was probably between the ages of 13 and 17 when he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. The, the Bible gives us a few clues on this. One, history tells us that they got done with school in those days between the ages of 12 and 15, and then they went into trade, uh, whatever trade they were going to go into. So if they were going to be a rabbi, they would go to, to um, rabbinical school. But if they were going to not go into rabbinical school, then they would just go into being a fisherman or a carpenter or uh, whatever, right? A miner, whatever the thing is. And so John, we know, was already in his trade. He was working for his dad, Zebedee, who was a fisherman. So we already know John was in a trade, so that means he didn't go to rabbinical school, which means that he was already graduated between the ages of 12 and 15. Then, we, here's another cool clue. The Bible gives us really neat stuff. The Bible says, um, I don't know if I put the verse in here or not, I didn't. But the Bible says, by year three of Jesus' ministry, so Jesus is around 33 years old, the Bible says that, uh, that Jesus and Peter had to pay a certain tax. Well, that may not mean anything, except you had to be 20 to pay that tax. So that would show us, of the people that were in Jesus' crew, there was two of them that were 20 or older, Jesus and Peter. And we know that Peter was married, so Peter had disciples, which means the other disciples were less than 20 by year three. Just an interesting thing to think about when you're thinking about somebody's life. When we start reading the story of Jesus. Now, when John wrote the book, he was older. He wasn't 13 writing the book, right? But when John wrote the book, he was older. But now, whenever we start reading about the disciples, and, and we say things like, why were the disciples so dumb? They, they were so immature. They were, yeah, they were immature. They were 15 years old. Can you imagine a bunch of 13 to 17-year-olds or 13 to 19-year-olds hanging out and being the ones that Jesus is leading the world with? That's scary. 
I see those people drive. So it's a scary thing to think about. Another interesting thing on his age is um, he was the last disciple to die. All the disciples died gruesome, terrible deaths. John died of, a, of old age. Now, he was also boiled in oil and survived it. So I think I would rather just die, right? But, but John survived until a very old age. Some people say probably into his late 80s, maybe 90s by the time he died. Um, I've even read some accounts that, that John uh, would show up, they would bring John into the church and, and, and very feeble, and that all he could say, um, I, I'm wanting to say, I may mess this one up, but all he could say was, was talking about the love of God. He just talked about loving God, loving God, loving God. So I think it's very interesting. Number five, this is a cool, not fact, but possibility that's going to shape how we read. It's possible, not a fact, it's possible, that John was a cousin of Jesus. Now, I've never heard that. Have you ever heard that? I had, who said yes? No, I was about to say. No, I'm just kidding. It's possible John was a cousin of Jesus. Now, that's going to change some of the things as we start reading through this. So whenever you start thinking about how John interacts with Jesus, sometimes uh, we'll read later on, we'll talk about, you know, the beloved disciple and all that kind of stuff, or, or, or John always being close to Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, John, James and John went with him. It's a possibility that James and John were cousins of Jesus. And, and, and here's where we get this thought. I, I, I put this up here. Go ahead and flip to the next slide. Um, if you look at this, a couple of things. At the crucifixion of Jesus, I promise I'll get into like preaching. Let me be a nerd for just a minute. At the crucifixion of Jesus, we see a, a certain uh, group of women that are at the crucifixion. Okay? So let's be detectives here for just a second. In Matthew, and, and sorry, I did put nicknames up here. We got, I call her Mary Mags. It's Mary Magdalene. Uh, in Matthew, the Bible says that Mary Mags Mary Cleophas, Mary Cleophas is also known as the mother of James and Joseph. Doesn't matter, but she's in multiple books written sometimes as the wife of Cleophas and, um, and the, the mother of those other dudes. And the mother of Zebedee's kids. I put Zeb's kids. Now, who did I say was James and John's father? Zebedee, right? So who is here? Who does Matthew say is here? Mary Magdalene, Mary, this other Mary and the mother of Zebedee's kids, John's mom, okay? John's mom. Then Mark, Mark records it like this. He says, these are the women that were at the feet of Jesus. Mary Mags, she's always there. Mary Cleophas, she's always there too. And Salome. Now remember I said earlier, Salome might be the name of John's mom, okay? Now, John himself, the, the guy that we're reading about, here's what John says. He says, Mary Mags, of course. Mary Cleophas, yes. Mary, the, a lot of people named Mary. So James, John, Mary, very popular names. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. But then it throws in one other person and her sister. Now, everybody else records John's mom, Salome, as being, we think those are the same person. And then John says, Jesus' mom was there. And her sister was there. So, some people think, if you tie all those three, three together, you're looking at a cousin of Jesus. And it makes, it makes the interactions between Jesus and John a little bit different now whenever you think that they're related. 
So, so imagine, one of the things we talk about a lot of times, my daughter Emma is driving, um, and then uh, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, Jesse and Wendy, they have a, a daughter named Alex, and so we talk about sometimes that now that Wendy's, I mean, that Emma's driving, whatever their names are, you know, uh, of, her, of her being able to take Alex places, like that was some kind of conversation we had, taking them to school or whatever the case was. And so think about like a kid cousin that's always hanging around and you bring that kid cousin under your wing and you take care of them and you treat them like a little sister, a little brother, and, and, you, and you help raise them and you take them places, right? Remember, if you, I never had cousins, but, but you may know that, right? That may be something that you, that you get. And so that gives us a different view of how Jesus and John interact. And then the sixth thing that I just think is an interesting fact that kind of gives us some, some clue into his life is that he might have come from a family of influence, and I know what you're thinking. He was uh, not educated. Yeah, he wasn't educated, but it doesn't mean that he didn't have influence. The Bible says this, that in, um, in Mark 1, the Bible says that, that Zebedee had hired hands. That Zebedee had workers. How many poor people do you know hire workers? Not many of them. So Zebedee didn't just have a fishing boat. Zebedee had a fishing business that he owned. The Bible also says that the story of the crucifixion of Christ in, in uh, where is it, in John 18. In that one, the Bible goes through and John mentions specific high-ranking officials by name. Nobody else does that. John knows who the high priest's servant is. John knows who the high priest's father-in-law is. John, the Bible says, is known by the high priest. Whenever Jesus is taken to trial, nobody goes with him. None of the disciples except one John. He walks right in. As a matter of fact, not only does he walk right in, he comes back out because Peter had to wait at an outer gate because Peter had no influence. He goes out, talks to a girl, gets Peter in because John's got the hookup. John might have been a person of some kind of influence. Again, it's not essential to the gospel. We just want to get a view of who John is. The other thing that John had is John had nicknames. And this is where we're going to get into the actual scriptures. In Mark chapter 3, verse 17, uh, we find one of John's nicknames. The Bible says it's giving a list of the disciples. And the Bible says that John is called one of the sons of thunder. As it lists the names, it says James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee. uh, But Jesus nicknamed them, Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Now, some people think that they, they were nicknamed this uh, maybe because of how loud and boisterous they were. They were, they, they, they were nicknamed for different reasons. I've got some reasons that, that as I've studied, that, that could also be the reason they were nicknamed this. One reason, maybe because they were a little bit immature. Again, being young, they might have been immature. The Bible says in Luke chapter 9, we're going to get into some of this because this is important for us. Luke nine forty nine says this. John said to Jesus, Master... We saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. And Jesus said, don't stop him, idiot. No, he didn't say that, but I threw that one in there. Anyone who is not against you is for you. John is very, um, I I don't know what the word is, but but just presumptuous. He just presumes to know what Jesus thinks. And so this guy's like doing a miracle in the name of Jesus. We just sang a whole song about it in the name of Jesus. And John starts trying to shut people down because they weren't part of the group. This is our group. We are special, right? 
You can't be apart. This is the attitude that John has. I, I need you to really focus here on the negative side of John. There's a reason I need you to focus, because sometimes what we do is we elevate these apostles, we elevate these writers to the, to the point that they're angels or something, that they never did anything wrong, but the fact is they were people just like me and you, and they had problems just like me and you. And there's a lot of us sitting in this room right now, even if we're in our 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, that we still get immature sometimes. We still have those moments of immaturity and messing up. We still have those moments where we're not the way we should be. Perry and I were having a, a long discussion this weekend, and in, in our discussion, I just told her, I said, I, I regret so much of how I used to be a husband. I regret the first few years of being a husband because I was so immature. And I look back on my life then, and I think I wish I could go back to 23-year-old Gabriel and just smack him right? Grow up. I wish I could do that. I mean, it's too late now, but, but we need to see that there's this level of immaturity sometimes that we have. And, and this is something that, that John did. The Bible also says, and I didn't put the scripture in here, but the disciples saw that, that parents were bringing their little kids to be blessed by Jesus. Now, John believes that this is the Messiah. If you believe this is the Messiah, why would you ever stop a parent from bringing a kid to be blessed by the Messiah? And John stopped them. And Jesus rebuked them and said, let the little children come to me. Another reason maybe he was a son of thunder was that he was very aggressive. In Luke chapter 9, verse 52 through 55, it says, talking about Jesus, that Jesus sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because it, he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said, listen, listen to this. This is so dumb. When James and John saw this, they said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? And look what Jesus did. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He rebuked them. Why? Because they're ready at the slightest inconvenience, at the, at the, at the smallest, um, just someone didn't accept us. Eh, call down fire from heaven and burn them. That's their mindset. And Jesus has to rebuke them. Now, some manuscripts, some, some manuscripts of, this, of this chapter, um, that, that they, they don't always include all the manuscripts because some stuff has been lost. And, and so they know that verses 52 through 55, they know for a fact those are in there. But some manuscripts also include a, a, a 56th verse that basically says, I'm going to paraphrase it, that Jesus says, you don't realize where your heart is. I didn't come to kill, I came to bring life. James and John, John especially here, because that's the one we're talking about, had this heart that was full, maybe of some anger, that was full of maybe some hurt, and he's wanting to get retribution. He doesn't like the Samaritans, as most Jews didn't, but Jesus had a heart for the Samaritans. And, and, and John, maybe, it, maybe it's some racial tension between him, the Jews, and the Samaritans, and John's angry, and Jesus calls him a son of thunder. And then we find out that he's very arrogant. There's two stories, Mark 10 and Matthew 10. I mean, Matthew 20. I don't think John records this story, and I wouldn't either if I were him. The Bible says in Mark 10, verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do us a favor. Jesus says, What's your request? 
They replied, verse 37, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you and your coworkers are having lunch and the boss comes in and immediately one of your coworkers stands up and says, hey, boss, can you do me a favor? Yeah, sure. What you need? I want to be second in command and I want to rule over all the people in the office. How would you feel? Would you be like, man, that guy's a go-getter. You know, he really is. He's after it. No, you would kick him. You'd call him an idiot. Yes. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking, exclamation mark. So he's kind of yelling at them here. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Jesus is basically saying, I'm about to be tortured and die. Are you able to be tortured and die? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we're able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with the baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen Verse 41, the most realistic verse in the Bible. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant, furious. Matthew chapter 20, Matthew gives us a different view of it. I'm not going to read it. Matthew's view is even worse because in Matthew's view of the story, their mama came with them to ask. They weren't even man enough to ask for themselves. Matthew said, Mark's taking it easy on them. Matthew says, oh, y'all forgot that Mama Salome was there too. Big Salami showed up, right? She showed up to get her boys a place of honor. Because they weren't man enough to ask for it. It still ends the same. They were all indignant. But then, then he's got another nickname, and, and I'm going to give you two more nicknames for John, and that's where we're going to end the message is, is with the last nickname. But the second nickname that he's given was not given by Jesus. It was not given by the other disciples. It was given later on by, by people that, that read John's works and, and some people that knew John. Um, and he was called the Apostle of Love. He was called the Apostle of Love. John writes about the word, uses the word love more than just about anybody else in the whole Bible. In John's writings, in just four books, we don't count um, uh, Revelation in this count that I'm about to give you. Although Revelation speaks of love, um, it also speaks of fire coming down from heaven. So, you know, that's John. Um, but in the four books, the John and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he talks about love over a hundred times love is mentioned. There, there's one chapter that mentions the word love like 40 times. John is constantly talking about love. And, and one of the things that makes me think about is, how do you go from being a son of thunder to being an apostle of love? There's some kind of journey there that John went on. There's some kind of transformation that John went through. And see, some of us today, we immediately can identify with the son of thunder. Some of us are looking at our life right now, and we can see the, the sin, the mistakes. We can see the arrogance. We can see the pride. We can see the immaturities. We can recognize the son of thunder in our life. But my question is, how do we transition from son of thunder into apostle of love? There's got to be a way to transition from one to the other. And one of the things about John, there's a, there's a theme in his in his writings that, that I feel like I, I could have shared at the beginning, but I want to share now. 
One of the themes in his writing is life. And not just life in general, but life in Christ. As a matter of fact, John uses the word life two times more than all three other gospel writers combined. So if you take all the gospel writers, all three of them, the other three, and you pile up the uses of the word life, John has double that in just his book alone. In contrast, they all talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom, the future, the establishment of God, what God's going to set up on the earth. They talk about the kingdom of God extensively. John only mentions it five times. I think if, I, if I, my numbers are correct, I think the other three writers mention the kingdom of God 55 times. John mentions it five times. In other words, John's not really concerned in his writings about one day, someday. John's concerned about a life in Christ right now. John says, listen, I, I want to get something. I'm a son of thunder, but I got to become an apostle of love. And there's some life that needs to be lived in there. And that life can only be found in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, another thing that John writes about more than anybody else is he writes about the Holy Spirit more than any other writer in the Bible. John loves to write about the Holy Spirit. What's so special about the Holy Spirit? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to us to lead us and guide us in our everyday life. Jesus dies on the cross to save us from our sins, but he gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us while we're here on earth. And so John is the one that writes about the Holy Spirit because he's concerned about this transition. He's concerned about the life. He's concerned about the journey, not so much the end. There's a verse that John, uh, John didn't write, but there's a verse in, in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. I love this verse, but it says this, Now repent of your sins and turn to God. This is Peter speaking. So Peter and John are together, and Peter stands up and starts preaching. He says, now repent of your sins and turn to God that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. I want you to notice something. The reason John was changed and transformed was not because John uh, got a good self-help book. It was because he spent time in the presence of Jesus. And Peter points that out. Peter says, repent and you'll be transformed. You'll be refreshed. You'll have new air to breathe is what that, that word refresh means. And he says the way you get that, when you get that, you're going to get it from the presence of the Lord. Not the presence of good people, not the presence of good preachers, from the presence of Jesus Christ. And what we do a lot of times in life is we find ourselves as a son of thunder, but we want to be an apostle of love. And so what we think is, if I can just get around the right group of people, if I can just have the right friends, if I can just go to the right church and just, just be around good people, that, that somehow my life is going to be transformed. If I can just listen to the right preacher, if I can just get the right guy to, to preach. And, and, and I've been a preacher for most of my life, and, and I've been in churches most of, well, all of my life. And one of the things I've noticed is, is I see people bounce from church to church to church, not trying to find the right church for them, but trying to find someone that's going to preach the way they want them to preach. And we bounce from place to place. But in reality, what we need is Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. It doesn't say anyone who belongs to a church or to a religion or to rituals. It says anyone who belongs to Christ. Another version says anyone who is in Christ. 
Christ is a new creature. John understood this concept as well, that you have to abide in Christ. What does it mean to, to be in Christ, to abide in Christ? Well, John writes a couple of things. He, he, he wrote something Jesus said in John fifteen ten. He says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as my Father's commandments remain, uh, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. There's something about obeying, something about, about living with Christ, for Christ, and allowing His Word to work through us that keeps us remaining in Him. John, 1 John 2, 5-6, through 6, here's how John talks about it. He says, But those who obey God's Word truly show how completely they love Him. This is how we know we are living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. He doesn't say you live your life the way you want to. He doesn't say you live your truth. He doesn't say you live a, according to a book. He doesn't say that. He says you live like Jesus lived, and that's how you know you're in him. There's a last nickname for John. It was the disciple that Jesus loved. John 13, 23 says the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. He wrote it five times in his own book. Now, whenever I read that, I used to think, man, this guy, he's arrogant. He's arrogant. I mean, how can you imagine if Colt were to write a book and he says, me and my mom and my sister and my brother and my dad all sat down to dinner. But the, the child that dad loved sat next to him. And I am that child. Right? So, so we've got this disciple that Jesus loved, and he wrote it five times. And so initially, we always think of that as being arrogant. Worship team, you guys can come on up. We think of that as being arrogant. But it's not arrogance. It's an understanding of the grace and love of God that he had that we need. John said, I was immature, but he was patient with me. I was arrogant, but he mentored me. I was aggressive, but he disciplined me. I was a sinner, but he loved me. When John says the disciple that Jesus loved, he's showing us that he had this understanding of grace. He can't speak for Peter, and he can't speak for James, and he can't speak for Judas, and he can't speak for, uh, you know, Thomas. But he says, I know he loved me. And how do I know he loved me? Because he died for me. He gave me everything. He loved me. He took care of me. John 3, 16. John wrote these words that he heard Jesus say. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only, one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John said, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's not a statement of arrogance. It's really a statement of humility. Because to be the disciple that Jesus loved, he has to recognize that he was jacked up on the other side of that. He has to recognize that I was a son of thunder and I became the apostle of love. How did I get there? I was the disciple that Jesus loved. I was the disciple that Jesus loved. I believed in him. I gave my life to him. And he transformed me. He wrote this in 1 John 1, nine. He said, but if we confess our sins to him... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And this is where we'll end.
This is the, the last scripture that we'll say. I want to focus for a second on cleanse, because John says this. He says, if we confess our sins to Jesus, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We usually get that part down. Like, that's a lot of times where we stop that verse, is that he forgives us of our sins. And, and, and we like that in church, because we show up at church as a son of thunder. We show up with some pride and some arrogance. We show up with some immaturity. We show up with some sin in our life. And, and we want to get forgiveness because forgiveness feels good. But that's not the end of the verse. The end of the verse says that he cleanses us from all wickedness. And I thought, well, what does the word cleanse mean? And so I looked up the word cleanse in the Greek. And, and here's what it means. It means to take something that has, has impurities mixed in and to remove the impurities so that all that's left is pure. My brother works in the oil industry, and, and part of his job is, is whenever people are, are producing oil, there's all this leftover sludge. And so what they would want to do is get rid of the sludge because they don't want the sludge anymore because they've already purified the oil. They've taken all the pure oil out, and now all that's left is the mixed-in mess. And so part of my brother's job is to take that mixed-in mess. He can buy it for, for pennies on the dollar because it's a byproduct. And he takes it, and he's got a machine that purifies that even more. Gets all the impurities out. And so now he, he's extracting good oil from all the bad stuff. And then he can sell that. In the Bible, they, they talk about the dross, right? The dross. And what that would mean is if you take silver or gold and, and you pull silver or gold up out of the ground, it's got a lot of other stuff in it. it. You don't just pull out bricks, right? And they would put it in a pot and they would begin to melt it in the cauldron. And as they applied the heat to the silver or the gold, all of a sudden you would see the dross or the trash rise to the top and then get scooped off. And what John is saying here is he's saying if you're willing... If you recognize that you're a son of thunder and you want to become an apostle of love and you're willing to be the disciple that Jesus loved. Now listen, don't get me wrong. Being the disciple that Jesus loved means what? It means you get rebuked sometimes. It, it means Jesus disciplines you sometimes. That's part of it. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. Sometimes he's got to point out some stuff in your life and say, this is wrong. We've got to change that. Sometimes there's a fire lit underneath the kettle. But it's good because he removes all the mess. One of the things I've found in my life and my ministry is the enemy is always trying to mix in. He's always trying to mix in. In my marriage, the enemy's always trying to mix in. In my parenting, the enemy's always trying to mix in. In my finances, He's always trying to mix in. And you start discovering things like greed or lust or immaturity. You start discovering some things like anger and bitterness. And as you begin to discover those, you begin to take those to Christ. You begin to give those to Him. And He begins to cleanse you of all wickedness. He makes us pure again. Won't you stand up with me this morning? Next week, we'll do John 1. This week was just the intro. 
Here's what I want you to do. I've got some prayer team people are going to come down to the front. If you need prayer for anything, this is the first step, right? This is the first step. So my dad and mom lead the prayer team, and I told them the other day, I said, here's my idea of the prayer team. My idea of the prayer team is not to solve everybody's problems. My idea of the prayer team is to be the first contact. The first contact. And there may be some of you today, you need a first contact. You just need someone to pray with you today. You need somebody to put their arm around you and say, hey, I'm here with you. I'm here to love you and pray for you and help you. No matter what you're going through today, maybe you're not serving Jesus at all. Maybe you need to give your life to him. Maybe you've been walking in sin. Maybe, maybe, you, you've been, uh, maybe you haven't been in sin. Maybe you're a Christian, but the enemy has been trying to mix in some stuff in your life. And you're saying, Gabriel, I've discovered some sons of thunder behavior, some sons of thunder mindsets. And I want that transition. I want that transformation. I want that change in my life. Whatever it is today, we want to pray with you. We want to pray with you. Maybe it's not your personal life. Maybe you're just dealing with something with your family and your finances or your your future. Those are all Fs. Whatever it is, we want to pray with you this morning. But I'm going to pray over you first. Lord, I thank you for this group. I thank you for this family and these friends. And we just ask right now that during this prayer time, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work. John talks about the Holy Spirit more than anything else. And one of the things that John says about the Holy Spirit is he says that you will convict us of sin and you'll convict us of righteousness. In other words, you want to take the sin out of our life and you want to push us towards doing the right thing. And so, God, right now, I just pray for everybody in this room that you would help us today to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is that you're speaking to our hearts today. Help us today to confess. Help us today to to ask for forgiveness. And God, I pray today that as we repent, your word says that the presence of the Lord shows up in our life. And our transformation is not because we came to an altar. Our transformation is not because we came to church or we listened to a sermon. Our transformation is because we spent time in the presence of Jesus. In your name I pray.